Hey everyone, it's Elle. Before we start this week's episode, I've got a favor to ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. This is our very first season of The Walk-In and we'd love to get feedback from you on what you're liking, what we could do better, and all that good stuff. It only takes a few minutes, so tell us what you think. And if you do, you'll get a 20% off coupon to the America's Test Kitchen online store. It's good for any cookbook, magazine, or digital download. So help us out and get 20% off. Now, on to the show. restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry, to confide in a friend, or to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to appear in control falls away, where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. From America's Test Kitchen, I am El Simone Scott, and this is The Walk-In. Hey, El. Hey, girl. It's Cicely. So I'm really excited to step into the walk-in and talk to you, okay? We're going to cover a lot of things. We're going to talk about, you know, growing up together as best friends when I was on one-on-one. We're going to talk about colors and how I was ratchet with all my blackness. And I'm going to bring you a bowl of sugar grits so you can eat it and listen to me talk to you about all these things. All right, so call me. Let me know when you want to hang out because I got you. Today, Cicely Sierra is heading into the walk-in with me. Cicely started out as a child actor and starred in one of my all-time favorite TV shows, One on One. But her passion for food and cooking eventually took her career in another direction. Cicely has done so much in the food world. Her resume is a laundry list of accomplishments. She's a founding board member for the Queer Food Foundation, culinary director of Wild Entertaining Magazine, and co-founder of Food Plus People with her amazing fiance, Mavis J. In 2019, Cicely became the chef of Colors, a New York City restaurant and training center. Colors was founded in the wake of 9-11 to support employees of Windows on the World, the restaurant that had been in the Twin Towers. Colors closed in 2017, and Cicely had big ideas for the reopening. She wanted to create a new model for growth and wanted to push their mission of opportunity and equity even further. But Colors closed again abruptly this January less than a month after reopening. Today, Cicely opens up for the first time about what really happened. Let's step into the walk-in. Also, this conversation took place remotely, so please forgive some of the audio quality throughout. Cicely, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today, Cicely. I am a huge fan. I'm a huge fan because... I want, I'm not a TV watcher. Anyone who knows me knows that. I don't even know how the hell I ended up on a cooking show. I do not watch TV. Even as a young person, I was just never into it. But one of like the five shows that I've watched in my whole entire lifetime from top to bottom, top to bottom. Wow. Was one-on-one. Top to bottom. You know, you have a show where you like, oh, this character is my favorite character. I loved everyone on yeah. the show. That was like my peer group. You know, like I could relate to, to the people at that time, you know. And usually when you're growing up watching TV, like the stars are either like younger than yeah. you. Like I was a little older than Punky Brewster, even though I rocked with her. Yes. 
maybe I was Blossom's age, you know, and I got that, but like she was Jewish. And so like, you know, there still wasn't like a direct parallel, but this group one-on-one, like all of y'all from fashion to boyfriends, to daddy issues, issues. to new girlfriend, daddy's new girlfriend, you know, all of that, all of that. I was totally, totally into it. So I'm a huge fan. And Although that is not my first introduction to you. You want to know how I first even knew that you existed? I'm terrified. What? It's, it's such a sweet story. Oh, Wait okay. Okay. It. Cool, cool. <laughs> I'm a James Beard Boot Camp for Policy and Change alum. Yeah. And the year that I went, I was with your fiance. Oh, yeah. MJ. Yeah. Right? Mavis J. And so every day, every morning for the whole time we were there... Mavis would say, um, I got to I, I gotta step out, y'all. I got to go check on my wife and kids. I'll be right back. Five minutes. And we'd be like, okay, cool. You know, like, yeah, word. Do that. That's important. <laughs> and so Mavis would be in the corner just talking and like, I love you. How's the kids? What'd y'all eat today? And I'm like, that is so sweet, you know? And just couldn't get enough of talking about you. And that was like the first introduction I had to who you were as an existing person. Still no clue, no clue. And um, I think maybe it took a whole year for me to like put the pieces together because I would see you all on social media together. And I'd seen seen and heard a couple of your interviews. And I was like, why does she look so familiar to me? (laughs) She looks so familiar. I used to be like, because I was on cop. I don't know. But yeah, I was like, yo, this this lady is super familiar to me. And I could and I was like, yo, <laughs> we gotta get her on the podcast. So I'm excited that you're here. I'm happy to talk to you. We have um a good amount of things in common. Can't wait to explore that. Yes. FIFO, first in, first out. All right, so now that we've covered all the ways that I've come to know and love you, let's get into the first segment of this walk-in, which is called FIFO. Do you know what FIFO means? Yes. Uh, well, obviously, it's first in and first out. So we're going to talk about your life in, in, in the same context as first in, first out. So I want you to tell me a little bit about Little Sicily growing up in Michigan, like me. And what was it like um, being a child in Michigan? I have never met another person from Michigan in person who's actually gone on to have media stardom, you know, television fame. Like, how did that happen? Tell me a little bit about that time. Well, that's that's the sad part of the story. So I don't remember a ton because I moved to California when I was like six. Because my parents had divorced, and then my younger brother and I had lived with my dad for a while. And then I moved to the San Fernando Valley, which I've, like, only known Los Angeles and the Valley. Yeah. Were you already kind of, at this point, moving into your TV work time? Like, and, you know, how did that come about? So my older brother started acting first. Mm -hmm. And then my two younger brothers began acting. And she was like, you should try it. And I was like, nah. This looks dumb. And she was like, just give it a try. See if you like it. And I was like, fine, I'll give it like one try. Mm -hmm. And then if it's a no-go, I'm good. And so my first audition was when I was like turning like seven. And it was for Sesame Street. Mm. And so it was really interesting because the audition was in the casting director's backyard. And she had like a trampoline. And I was like, oh, I could do this. I could go to some random person's house and like jump on a <laughs> and trampoline. And have a good time, yeah. So that was cool. That was my very first audition and it was dope because it's still shot in LA, 
But it was like for Gap had did a campaign with Sesame Street. So it was like the letters G, A, and P. And it was like you narrated this whole thing in the words. And it was like super cute. Um, and it like won an Emmy and all that. And I was like, okay, fine. Um, and I would dip in and out. So the but... very first thing you ever worked on won an Emmy when you were like yeah. seven years old? Yeah. My God. <laughs> what are the odds? Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is why I'm so hard on myself now. <laughs> but then like it was weird because it it became something mm-hmm. that I grew to love. But I still like loved like chasing knowledge and education. Yeah. So it was hard for me to commit to it because I'd be like, cool, but can I go back to school now? I only did school three hours a day. So I had to be like on it with school. Yeah. And then in my first year of high school, I booked Mm one-on-one. But it's because Kyla and I, they had picked up the show the year before Mm -hmm. and they had put it on hold. And her mom had called my mom and she was like, they want to do this show, but they want to have a best friend. So they asked us to reach out to like all of her friends who act in the business and would they be interested in auditioning? So around that time, it was also like around the time of her birthday. So we had went to like Six Flags or like Raging Waters or something like that. And so it was like the audition was on the heels of us like spending a whole weekend together for her birthday. Okay. But it went by really fast. Like it was like we had like 12 auditions in the matter of like two weeks. Wow. That's that's quite a bit. Yeah. And then immediately like went into shooting. Uh-huh. It was crazy. So we literally grew up on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Like often you hear that like people are like years older. Yeah. Than their character. Like it's a 30-year-old playing a 16-year-old. Like how much of your childhood do you feel like you sacrificed to be on television like it sounds like you were having dabbles of like normalcy splashed in between work 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 tell me how you navigate through like did you have therapy or like friends or i wish i would have i mean yeah i had other friends that were in the but i by no means had like a normal upbringing well i fought for me to have me personally to have one that was as as close to normal as possible. Like Mm -hmm. even when we were filming one-on-one, I would be like, cool. So the reason I didn't work as much is because when the show, the show would shoot from like August to February. So from February to August or February to June, I had elected that I was going to go back into school. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so I was like, I'm going to go back to high school, which was like hella problematic because one, I'm black. So the, People who were, who were in homeschool at that time were like kids in continuation or kids that had just gotten out of like juvenile detention. So I always had to fight yeah. to go back into school because they're like, okay, well, what was your problem? And how is it that mm. you were in a place of homeschool and you were ha- you have great grades? What's the thing? So I had to be like, no, there's there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just working yeah. or whatever. So I always went back to school. Mm-hmm. So that that meant I had to sacrifice a good portion of my career because that's when people do films and other things and other guest spots. Yeah. But I was like, I need to be like in school. So I did get to go to like my junior prom, my senior oh, prom. Good. Then it was like the thing of like, are you hanging out with me because I'm such a bubbly personality or is it like something else? Yeah. So, I mean, I tried to be as normal. It was hard. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like... But then it's like, I was the person who was like out in clubs at 15, 16 Mm -hmm. too, because people didn't care. So yeah, like I feel like now I'm like, I'm old, y'all. But you were also famous and I'm sure that that created way more entryway to things that 
you know, that almost all the people in the world don't have access to. Like, no right. no one's turning you away from anything because right. they're just not. And, you know, they don't they're they not. don't want to be that person. Right. Yeah. Wow. I can only imagine some of the things that you've probably seen in that Tinseltown yeah, scene. Oh, my God. But then I got married at 20. And that, like, slowed my life down a lot because it was, like, the last season of one-on-one the more we would go out to events and the more we would go out to do things and being around my mom and having Sunday dinners and being around my friends and and carrying on that vibe of like a Sunday dinner dinner party, the more my perspective shifted from like cooking from acting. Like when we would go out to events, I'd be like, I just want to see what they're cooking. I just want to know the food what they're doing. Like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was like this weird thing where... The only way I know how to describe it, because people are always like, would you go back to acting? But it's like, acting is like being in a relationship with someone and it's like the pay is the the thing. But it's like, you know, it feels good, but it's not for you. Yes. That's the way I started to like feel about it. I have this like romance with cooking and because my mom had put me in acting so early and I, and it was like, if you love it, stay, if you don't leave, mm-hmm. that I was like, you taught me to only do the thing that I love. So I can't stay here anymore because this is not the thing that gets me excited or gets me out of the bed anymore. So I need to like focus on cooking. So as it transitioned, I started doing dinner parties and like catering for friends. And and then I was like, okay, I'm gonna go to culinary school. And that was like when our daughter was born. That's so interesting. This sounds like a textbook AARP story. You technically retired from acting and started hosting dinners for your friends (laughs) and then cooking. All right. So you're like food, through line to happiness, have a new baby. Mm -hmm. Um, I would imagine maybe at some point your, your marriage was starting to shift as well? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think that we married very different people. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So he was coming into his career and I already had an established one. So the things that made him excited about his career or the things that were like, oh my God, did you know? It's like, yeah, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And so he married someone who was, like, up here, and I, like, chose to, like, be on the decline of my career Mm -hmm. to go into a new one. So I think that that was also an issue. So I was, like, working, cooking, and doing different things. And then he went on tour, because he's a drummer, and our kid was, like, one. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go to culinary school. Mm -hmm. We were in therapy, and he was like, this is a horrible idea. Like, this is going to ruin our marriage. And, um... I went and it was wild because I would like drop her off at daycare and then go to culinary school and then pick her up and like go home and do homework. Mm -hmm. So it was like this thing of like financially I was operating from a place of privilege because I could just be like, I'm a do. Right. But then it was like very humbling because then I had to go into like single parent mom mode of being like, I got to learn how to juggle because he was gone. And then I ended up doing like a double internship and that's how my career entryway into cooking got started was with the LA Times Test Kitchen. Okay. And so I would drop her off at school, get to the test kitchen, work, go to school, possibly go back to the test kitchen and then and then go pick her up to go home and like make dinner wow. and all the things to like, yeah, it was it was ridiculous, but it was great. It was the best decision I ever made. Yeah. I loved it. 
Yeah, I know that feeling. No matter how how rough it is going, you love it. I was working my last social work job while I was in school, and I would go to class from 8 to 1.45, and then yeah. I would go to the shelter that I was running and sleep in the basement until about 4.30 and then get dressed to be ready to report upstairs for 5 o'clock. Yep. <laughs> and and then work from 5 p.m. to 1 a.m. And so there would be days I'd be awake for like 72 hours straight. No sleep. Yeah. No sleep, you know. And um, that eventually wow. landed me in the hospital for exhaustion. So I don't recommend that, folks. Don't, right. don't do that. Don't. Don't do that. Don't. But, Lead there. Yeah. But the point of it all is that, like you, I loved it so much that these seemingly huge sacrifices were little to me, you know, because it was mm-hmm. that through line to happiness for me. So I totally get that. I'm glad you pushed through, sis. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was like, especially if you grow up in an environment where like cooking is a thing, because mm-hmm. people assume like, why do I need to go to culinary school? I know how to cook. I think people think of science when they think of baking, but when you think of the science of cooking and the why and the history, though problematic sometimes, and all of these things, you're like, we should all be knowing this. Like, we should all have these tips yeah. and tricks and foundations, like, in our back pocket. So when we go into these spaces, it puts us ahead of whatever we're trying yeah. to get to when we walk into these jobs. It's empowerment, it was, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Did you come from a food family? I did. I can trace my family back seven generations on my mom's side and a couple of generations back on my father's side. Mm -hmm. And so on my dad's side is like Native American and Creole. So it was like this really interesting hodgepodge of cooking. But then on my mom's side, my grandfather, seven generations up, was a cook on a plantation. Mm. And they turned it into a bed and breakfast. These things always fascinate me. But they turned it into a bed and breakfast. It was like, if his family ever comes looking for him, tell his story. So he had daughters, and then they had daughters. And then there were seven sisters, and my grandma was one of the seven sisters. And then she had my mom, and my grandma's sister had a, a place in Chicago called The Green Door. And her sister and aunts had restaurants. So I've only like known cooking my grandmother they said would like ride the bus and take my great uncle with her. And she was a a cook. So it's just been a thing. And then my grandmother went on to become a nurse. And, but she always had this open door policy that like, if you have nowhere to go Mm -hmm. by whatever means that is, you can always come here. You can eat here. We'll take care of you. And then my mom like kept that going. And then like moving out, it was always a thing for us. And then it was always a thing that like, I did with my girlfriends and then my kids and their friends, like, just come over and have dinner. So it's always been there. My aunts are cooks. I have cousins that went to culinary school. Like, I have a cousin who is still in Detroit. Mm-hmm. She does, like, only baked goods and, like, all this stuff. So it's it's always been there. Yeah, Like, it's always been something that I was, like, in love with. And my relationship to people has always been centered around food. Mm -hmm. We had dinner every Sunday, Mm. like every Sunday religiously. I think until I got married, we came together and we sat down and we had dinner. Whether that meant if we never saw each other during the week, that was the one time and everybody had their, yeah. Mm -hmm. So like even my youngest brother at like six, 
you were making baked beans. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like you were putting them in the oven, you knew what to do. So it's always been this thing that like, let me show you how to care. Let me show you how to love. Let me show you what what friendship looks like. It's It's been centered around food. Yeah, that's amazing. All right, so you've finished culinary school, second baby. Yeah. Husband is still around. He's on his way out. Yeah, so he's on his way out. But he was gone. He was touring for 10, 11 months out of the year. Mm-hmm. So it was like... God knew that I was going to have to prepare to do this alone. So there was, I had a big like runway of transition to figure out who I was and how to take care of these kids alone. And, you know, cause that was a big thing for me too. When we got married was like, part of it was like pleasing my mother. And then part of it was like, if I do all of the right things, mm-hmm. if I check all of the right boxes, then I won't have the relationship that her and my father had. Yes. I mean, we don't, but like, so it was hard, like at, 29 to get divorced. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And be like, okay, I got to start over. But we got divorced. And then there were a few years where it was just like me and the girls. And it was so great because I'm so grateful that like we have such a great community. And then I had jobs in my career that understood that my children were non-negotiable. Right. But I also realized that that was because I'm reckless to be like, well, then I don't need this job, right? Mm -hmm. That was like hella dope to be like the sous chef on food trucks and then to be like, it's fine. Or like have a team that would be like, we'll drive the truck up so you can drive up with your kids. And then have a friend of mine be like, okay, it's first Fridays. We'll watch your kids while you work. And then when you guys are done, we'll drop the girls off to you so you can like go home. So that was like, I've always been like hella grateful and like, mindful that like what community is and then so we were divorced and I was sous chef on a food truck and then this is where if you ask her this story gets very different (laughs) we met because she had she had left Blue Hill okay with a bunch of friends who is she tell us who she is oh sorry yes Mavis J okay my fiance Uh uh-huh so she's she was in New York and she was working at Stone Barns in Blue Hill like upstate and in the city. And a bunch of them that work there had come to Los Angeles to start a food truck together called Pico House. Our truck was, it was called the pudding truck. And it was two of us Mm -hmm. and the girl that owned it. And then we had other employees, but it was like, we made stovetop custard. We made pudding from scratch. So we met there. I remember the day that I like officially, (laughs) in my mind, met her. And it was very interesting because I was in this space of like, I'm a single parent. I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. I just need to focus on work and raising my kids and like living out the things that the values that matter to me. How do I support my community? How do I show up for people that look like me? You know, those things. Mm -hmm. And then the day that I saw her, I was like, oh my God, who is that? (laughs) Who are you? And it was really interesting because it was like, even when we were talking it was like we had known each other for years or it was just supposed to be. And I was just so fascinated by her. I want to just make the listeners aware, if you cannot hear the smile on her face right now, you should, You could, if only you could see it. That's all I have to say right now. <laughs> I think that she's really great. Like, it's really, I mean, she's amazing. She's great. I don't know how I found her, but I was like on Instagram and she came across my feed. And by this time I had moved 
to the Bay Area with my mom and my brothers. Um, and we had joined La Cucina. So I was okay. in the process of opening a business. And I would just like stalk her on Instagram. And we started talking more and more. And it was like, oh, my God. Like, we sh- totally should have, like, really become better friends. Mm-hmm. And then in 2018, it was like this thing of like, okay, this is getting a bit more serious. Like, mm-hmm. what are we going to do? Um, and for like a lot of reasons and like the relationship with my mom, I was like, okay, I'm going to come, we'll come to New York. But it was hard when we moved here because I walked away from my my dream of like mm-hmm. opening this business. And then I ha- I hadn't been in therapy in a while. And so it's like, how do I love you with all the mm. broken pieces of the relationship yes. with my mom, of my dad? of my marriage and not let that hinder you. And it was really hard because when we first came here, people would be like, oh, she's got kids. So then I had this like single mom stigma that I was As carrying. As most single moms do. That like, mm-hmm. right. That like I was putting on me, but when they were younger, we would like do good night and she would make sure to like be there mm-hmm. with them. She recklessly became their parent without like looking mm-hmm. back at all. They were not babies. You know what I'm saying? Like, you had to constantly... I mean, the the older one was like... By the time we moved here, Mm. she was like 11. So it's like, you're turning into a preteen. And she just... Let her tell it. They're her children. She doesn't know anything other but them, like, being her daughters and, like, fights for... There's times I'd be like, I would have never cussed that person out for the way that they treated them. And she's like, no, these are my kids. And they have such an admiration for Mm. her. It sounds to me like this is actually your first real experience with like equity and partnership ever, right? Like in in all the ways like combined, like in business, because you all are in business together often, um, in parenting, which is something that you didn't experience growing up. In love, yeah. which is something that you didn't experience in your marriage, yeah. because even probably it sounds like even when the marriage was good, there was still a huge amount of absence in terms of, you know, being present. Yeah. So, like, this is your first real, like, real thing. partnership breakthrough that is so amazing and beautiful. Yeah, it's stressful. The Volrack Company has been making industrial cooking gear for 145 years, and they brought that long history to the table when they decided to launch Nuku, their line of cookware and bakeware for home chefs. Here's Jean Horvath, the Vice President of Custom and Specialty Products. With Nuku, it really gives them the confidence to explore their passion and focus on the joy that drives them to the kitchen. Uh, what we like to say is Nuku stands out by not standing in the way. Don't let subpar cookware stand in your way. Nuku Cookware and Bakeware is available on Wayfair and at select specialty retailers and cooking schools. Through the month of October, enjoy a special promo when you visit Nuku.com and enter promo code KITCHEN at checkout for 35% savings off their stockpots. That's N-U-C-U.com, promo code KITCHEN. I'm a food stylist by trade which means that aesthetics are very important to me. Whether it's food or home decor, I want things that are beautiful, well-made, and tell a story. That's why Room & Board is so great. They focus on furniture and home decor that is modern, well-made, and trend-proof. 
And they work with family-owned businesses across the country to source the absolute best in American craftsmanship. And get this, more than 90% of their products are manufactured in America. Even better, they offer free design services over the phone, through video conference, or in their stores. Their experts can help with any project, big or small, from picking a pillow to creating a 3D rendering of your space. Go to roomandboard.com to learn more. When Jim Cook founded Samuel Adams in 1984, he knew he had a good idea, a great beer, and a thick skin. But that didn't mean it was easy to get the business off the ground. I realized after a while that it took me 20 calls to get one customer. So I got 19 rejections for every one acceptance. So every time I got a rejection, I think, well, I just got 120th of a customer. I only got 18 more to go. And that kept me going. So when he did find success, Jim knew he wanted to help other entrepreneurs chasing their dreams too. That's how the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program was born. Since 2008, the program has helped thousands of passionate passionate food and beverage craftspeople succeed so they can do what they love. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. The Wall Slide. Okay, Cicely, this is the moment in the podcast that I like to call the wall slide moment. The wall slide is like when you have to step into the walk-in and like you are melting down. You are Your back is against that wall and you are just going down. You are having it out with yourself because you're, you're just experiencing that moment of all moments. Sometimes these moments shift you personally. Sometimes they shift you professionally. Tell me about what a wall slide moment has been for you. So... When I went to New York and came into this colors thing, like there were a lot of people that were like, don't do it. Mm. Don't do it because it's really like problematic and they don't see people very well, even though that's what they say they do and all of these things. So I had gotten the opportunity from a few friends. And then one of the people that was Consulting them with him was Daniel Patterson, who I know. Mm-hmm. And I used to work with his nonprofit. And so he was like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, you know, you, I only do Black American, Black food. Right. And <laughs> and so like that's so if you don't want that, that's fine. But it's like especially coming from the Bay with Pinky and Reds, like we only did Black American food. I'm not going to sit here and do food that like makes other people comfortable, but not true to me. Right. So it was like points where we'd be in meetings and they'd go out in the press and be like, oh, it's Afro-Caribbean food. I was like, no, it's regular Blacks. We were slaves. Now we free. Like, let's not even like, (laughs) that's a whole different something else. Yes. So I was always like pushing back. And very early on, I realized that like, I think they didn't like me because I was like, cool, you guys open something. And granted, the the conception of this thing was a tragedy, but that was 800 years ago. Right. Nobody cares. And half the kids that you're talking to these days have no concept of what 9-11 was Mm -hmm. and what it meant for the rest of us. I was like, so apart from that, what are you? Yes. And so they would, having these conversations about labor laws and all of these things that weren't relevant to New York. So they went out and did a press thing and was like, 
we're going to pay a fair wage plus tips. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm not saying that people don't deserve a fair wage, but that's so problematic. Like you have a training facility that should be in tandem with this organization in this restaurant. So if I take this program and I only take back of the house and I want to learn front of the house or vice versa, what you're saying is the front facing people who we tend to know as only being the white people that people see Mm -hmm. deserve more. Yeah. And I was like, so that's not real and that's not fair. So I was like, cool. So you want to do $15 an hour plus tips. So that means that our, our front of the house people made $15 an hour plus tips. So that means that if you're going to make those people pay tips, then you don't give a shit about back of the house. You don't care what happens to them because you're saying right. that that is what people see is more important. But how are you going to start them at $15 an hour? One is no more important than the other. It's, it's an entanglement, right? Like it's a whole yes. dance that, <laughs> that happens between all of us. Yeah. And I was like, so it needs to be properly thought out. What's your solution? And so it was like, I don't want to keep tap dancing around this phoenix out of the ashes thing that you always say. Sure. So let's take what's new and different and then let's learn about who the people were that were at that when 9-11, who was in the towers that are still here. So there was like a guy who had just quit before the towers went down and then he started his own wine business. And I was like, okay, we'll buy our wine from him. Mm-hmm. And so we had the conversation. I was like, I really only want black wineries. And he was like, there aren't that many, whatever. Let's highlight them like this. And then, and I was like, that's fine. Let's keep it small. And then he was like, so if you want to build out your wine list from there, let's find really small, amazing women of color vineyards globally to offset some of that. So it was like those things were problematic for them where they were like, there was nothing that was centered in whiteness. Mm -hmm. And so when you walked in, we only hired black and brown people. Mm -hmm. Like, so so people would walk in our vendors and be like, so there are no white people that work here? And I was like, not to my knowledge. You know, Mm. I'm like, yeah. No. Like, <laughs> sorry. Like, I'm, I mean, what do you... Like, is that needed for communication? Yeah, like, yeah, what like, do you what want do you... me to say to you? So, and so that was, like, fascinating. And so I want you to blow people's minds when they walk in here and they see all these black and brown people. And you could be like, oh, I love the fried chicken and pancakes. And here's why we serve pancakes. Because, you know, lower income black people don't own a waffle iron. So we ate fried chicken and pancakes. Fried chicken and waffles is not a thing to a lot of us. But here's the Riesling that we pair with it. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So it was like those things. And I think that that also was that like weird space of empowerment where like it was pushing too far because Mm -hmm. they just wanted to push people out for the numbers to say, we have a program that pushes these many people through. And I was like, this, you're not teaching them anything. And then they go out into the world and they fail and they can't understand why they can't hold down a job or understand a job is because language matters. What you look like matters. Yeah. Presentation. A uniform. Like, yeah. And so I didn't, let up on those things. And so we had the Black Food Folks event on Monday. And on a Wednesday, he was like, you know what? We're going to close the doors Mm. because it's just too much trying to figure this out. And I was like, so how much like runtime do we have? And he was like, Sunday. And I was like, so you mean to tell me we're closing on Sunday? And and so like our full-time staff were single moms. Mm. So my thing was like, we have three days and you're going to put 
these three women out of a job. They all have small babies. And one of them was living in a shelter. And what do you expect me to do? And you want me to just close these doors for them and them not to like be stressed. And it's the middle of, like it was the middle of January. And so it was like the 17th. So like in two weeks, they have rent, they have all of these things. What do you expect me to do? I'm going to kick up dust to make sure that they can afford to make it through at least the next month or the month after right. that. That's my responsibility. Sure. Like, And so, I mean, it was hard because we fought so much for them. And I was like, not really taking into account who and where and what was happening to me in the interim and how like stressed and like pushed to capacity I was. And it was hard on our family. Like, I feel bad that like the team that we had didn't get the opportunity to like fall in love with food the way that so many of us have. But also we let them down. We were just another thing in the world that crushed them. We were just another thing that took hope from them, took stability from them, took opportunity from them to be able to find their space of peace and comfort and consistency. Like, I still talk to a good portion of them still, but like, we never got you out of a shelter and that was the goal. You know what I'm saying? Like, we we didn't help you find a home. So, I I mean, I would have to say that I completely disagree with you. And maybe because I'm a social worker and a lot of the experience that I've had in that field is that you often feel like the work is incomplete. Like even when in reality you've done like everything that you could do, there will still always be a need, especially for disenfranchised and marginalized people. Like there's no one person that can meet all the needs. And most social workers get burned out because they don't, it's very hard to accept that reality because our everyday is wrapped around supporting your consumers, right? And so, you know, while you probably didn't reach the stretch goal as you had imagined it, but they now have an experience. They have had an entry point to experiences that they would have otherwise not gotten anywhere else. You provided that to them for colors. Like, were you able to get someone out of the shelter? No, but you definitely gave them a baseline experience of what the formula for stabilization of life looks like. You gave them the yeah. blueprint for what like self-sacrifice, even when you don't have much more than the person that you're helping, looks like, you know? You've introduced them to people who are now part of a network that they feel comfortable reaching out to because they can say Chef Sicily introduced us at Colors back in the day. Remember, I was in that class. You've given them so many tools, so many resources. You've given them so much more than they walked in the door with. You gave them everything that you could give them. And granted, once you get the proper resources to do things the way that they should be done, tending to the gap in the ways that you do, I can only imagine what you're going to provide for the culinary industry in the near future. Like that was the tip of the iceberg, not just for you, but for 
all those people that you advocated for in that restaurant level. So if you don't walk away from this conversation with anything, (laughs) I need you to walk away with that because that's exactly what you did. And they will never forget you for that. Like never, ever. I am clearly almost 15 years out of that last shelter that I worked with, but Maybe my second year at ATK, there was an older woman, uh, Miss Vivian. I won't give her last name away, but Miss Vivian was an older woman. She somehow watched the show, sent an email to America's Test Kitchen to be like, I remember Miss Scott. She was so good to us. I'm so happy to see that she is at this point in her life. Mm. You could give me every award that this crazy industry has to offer, none of them feel like that letter felt to me. None of them. None yeah. of them ever will. Yeah. They never can. And you know, and you know, you you keep in touch with them. You talk to them. They know what it should look like. That's important. Yeah. And that's the thing. It was hard, you know, is like what's mine to carry and what's not. And it was hard to just know that like they had so much potential that there was in the space hovering, that there was so much potential and opportunity, but there were so many things that like, and I think we all, we always do this is tend to do it as people of color. It's like, we feel like we got to fight for it all mm-hmm. right here in this space. Yeah. And then I also felt like I was the representative. And so I was the one who was responsible for all of those things. And because I knew that there were a lot of problematic things going into this, I'd essentially aligned myself with this organization, knowing that that they had done like not cool shit, that I had co-signed yeah. this experience yet again for other people. It was hard. I mean, to make sure that 13 people like got their needs met, I will like be forever like grateful for. But it did, it was it was hard. It was hard to just look at them and be like, this is it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing that could have been the stability that you needed. And I still struggle with, even when I talk to some of them now, like I wish we could have done right by them. I think I wish we could have done better, but I also have to like still war with the fact that like some of that is not, is not, is not mine to care. I did the best yeah. that I could do. Cause really there's in this situation, it doesn't sound like there was really a, we, you know, we do have to be very mindful about owning that in which it's not ours. And I think that's that's the thing the industry is reckoning with right now. You know, now that the structure doesn't exist, we are forced to really examine how things have been going, how things have been running, how people have been treated, you know? And yeah. suffice it to say, this story that you tell is more common, even in, in structures that are not intended to help people as colors was intended to do. You know, this is actually right. happening with people who are running full-on operations, Mm-hmm. All the people are are struggling in the way that the staff at Colors was struggling in their own respective ways. Because there are always the same people in the front of the house. There is always the same people in the back of the house, yeah. which are usually BIPOC communities and undocumented people in this country. And that's problematic across the board. Yeah. So you don't own that one, girl. You ain't got, that ain't your cross. All right, Cicely, so you're in New York. You and Mavis J are raising this wonderful little growing, developing heart, soul, family together. Colors is official Black history. Food plus people is the new baby in the house. So tell me about that. 
there's always this conversation that we have and I'm like, I really love food and I really love people. So how, how do we always like bring those two together and, and, and tell this story? So we wanted to start off doing dinner parties and like smaller dining experiences. But then we were like having that conversation of like, okay, we both about to be 800 years old. <laughs> so what's going to be our exit strategy? Right. And we were like, well, let's develop a line of like, added value products. Mm-hmm. And so we can begin to create products that are centered in the food that we do, the stories that we tell about being black. And so it started with a soup mix and like how we can seeing how like the single moms and how they struggle or few people who are apprehensive to cooking, how can we meet everybody's needs in a very lighthearted, feel good environment? And so we created these products and then you just had to add one thing. Mm -hmm. Like if you use the hot sauces that double as marinades and our seasoned flour, you just need to add the chicken or the fish or just add water for the pancake mix. And it was like, all right, well, let's figure out, you know, what do Black people love to eat and how can we create that and it be shelf stable? It's hard because it's a totally different like mindset of cooking. Sure, yeah. It's a little more scientific. It's a little more like when you crack the seal, what does the bottle look like? Sure. What is, how does it fit? How can you fit things in a big cabinet, a small cabinet? We talk about like noodles, ramen noodles. Like if you got to tear that packet and you hate cooking, mm-hmm. the fact that it's still like seasoning still stuck in that packet will like piss you off. Right. So how can we think through <laughs> products and all of these things where like those things don't happen or people cannot feel like, this is just too cumbersome. Mm-hmm. So it was like with the flowers, you don't need seasoning. I think um, Food Plus People sounds so intelligent as a concept because not only does it do all those amazing things that you just mentioned, but like the idea of being able to buy chicken seasoning also eliminates having to buy other spices that probably don't, you know, spices get used in Black households. I will say that. Like, right, you know, we, right, we are yeah. not wasting any garlic powder, garlic, onion powder, seasoning salt, Lowry's accent. We are never, we were, are replenishing those on a regular basis. <laughs> but the idea of like potentially for someone who even doesn't have that much access to be able to get everything that they need and only one other ingredient is necessary is amazing. Yeah. You know, like I, some yeah. people don't have the privilege of having more than three spices in their pantry at a time. How do we, how do I still have a good, enjoyable meal? It does change the game and that is genius. And, um, oh, before we go, I do want to talk quickly about Black food, right? (laughs) Yes. Tell me your favorite thing to cook. Like if you, if we were together for this interview in the same kitchen, what would you be cooking for me right now? I think that as of late, our, our, our go-to, which is, so ridiculous is like fried chicken and pancakes right now. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't turn but also it away. I, yeah, but I also feel like I'm trying to slowly sneak into everybody like grits with sugar because I feel like people don't give it enough credit. Ooh, the way does your back hurt? The way you just jerked in that chair like whiplash. <laughs> See, it's so rude. This is what I'm talking about. Wait, I just don't understand you guys. I read that somewhere, but I was like, I must be misreading this. I'm so, okay. So now I'm glad you brought it up because I do not <laughs> think that sugar has any place in grits right now, or ever. <gasps> Why? How that tastes? The two it I don't tastes know. so good, like butter and sugar. And I have a very it's it's a very problematic way of thinking. Apparently, like butter and sugar in your grits taste so good. I only can put 
salt and pepper in my grits if there's something on top. And sometimes cheese is not enough. It needs to be like a shrimp or a something for it to like whoa, 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 whoa. be salt and pepper. <laughs> I just don't understand. I don't understand what you guys are talking about. Do, I don't do understand. you do sugar on white rice also? Do you do sugar butter white rice? I, yeah. <laughs> Girl I feel like love. there was so much judgment in your voice that I was like, I guess not. Um, yes. <laughs> However, I love rice in general, so I can eat rice in any capacity. But do mm-hmm. my children be like, oh, a little butter, a little sugar? Was I raised on butter and sugar? Absolutely, because it's delicious. Mm, okay. So disrespectful. Well, if, if I come over... <laughs> <laughs> we'll stick to chicken and pancakes. That will be just fine for me. Thank you so much, Cicely. I appreciate your time, your vulnerability, um, your sharing and teaching. I think my takeaway today is that you are as phenomenal as I I have always imagined you to be. I always wanted Spirit as my best friend growing up. Like, I mean, technically she was, so I don't know why I said that. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you are, I can see why Mavis J would want to jump on the phone and check on you every hour of the day. You are very precious, Jim. Thank you so, so much for stepping into the walk-in with me. If you love food and people and you're listening to this show, so I know you do, then you have to check out foodpluspeople.com where you can order some goodness shipped right to your door. Don't forget to follow them on Instagram at foodpluspeople underscore to keep up with all their latest. And be sure to check out Wild Entertaining Magazine. We dropped a link in the show notes. And I'm so excited that One on One is now streaming on Netflix. Talk about Netflix and chill. If you want a moment in the walk-in, send us your questions. You can email us at thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. You can send anything you need advice on, from the personal to the professional and everything in between. I'll only use your first name on the show for privacy. That's thewalkin at americastestkitchen.com. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real, raw, unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, Elle Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Caroline Rickard. Our producers include Caitlin Kelleher, Hen Margolis, and Sarah Joyner. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Nuku, Room and Board, Escoffier, Samuel Adams, Berkshire Bank, and Valley Fig Growers. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love the walk-in, then I have a treat for you. 
We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.